Bethel Bible Church. My name is Eric Barton, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and we are delighted that you're here. We say this all the time. We are convinced that it is not an accident or even a coincidence that you are here. We are certain that God in his sovereignty and in his goodness divinely directed your steps to be here this morning because he, the greatest communicator in the cosmos ever, wants to communicate and wants to connect. And he has much to show us, much to reveal to us so that we are changed. I don't know if you've ever thought about why we gather. Yes, for worship. Yes, for the edification of the body of Christ and all those things. But it is so that we actually ever increasingly are conformed into the image of the Son of God himself. And so the way he has done that is by giving us this. And my copy's got like 1,500 pages. There's a lot in here. So I want to talk about this book this morning as we start a brand new fall semester sermon series. This Bible of ours. Sometimes the Bible can seem like a whole weird collage or casserole or collection of random stories that sort of somehow point us to Jesus, but I'm not really sure what's going on with this and what's going on with that. So this morning, I want to sort of help set the stage for what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks together. Your Bible basically has five characters. Now, I know there's a whole lot of names and a whole lot of different begat such and such, but essentially your Bible has five characters. In the beginning, God. He pre-exists. There was never a time when he was not. He exists eternally in three persons, and there is one God. The Bible never tries to defend the existence of God. He just is. He's the first, and he's the primary character in all of scripture. What we begin to find is then there is uh, some things that happen and there's some, some moments of creation and there is a second character that is introduced into the narrative. It is the angelic realm, angels. And by the time we actually get our Bible start to be written down, some of those angels have actually fallen and now they're wicked and they're sealed in their wickedness. We'll call them demons. But there's conflict because we have the angelic realm. So the first character, God. Second character, angels. And then the third character on the stage is a dude. Now, that's not how I would have drawn this up. It's a dude. It's Adam. Belly buttonless Adam. He's the third character. He's the first human being. And so we have this now sort of the slowing down from eternity past into the introduction of Adam, and ultimately his wife Eve, and we have humanity. And for the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, those are the three characters in the narrative until we come to Genesis chapter 12, where we begin to be introduced to the father of the fourth character. And the fourth character is Israel, but his father is Abram. Now remember, Abram is not a Jew. That might shock and stun some of us. Abram's not a Jew. He's a dude. Out of Abram, God creates a new people, a new nation, a new covenant community out of nothing because that's what God does. But Abram is the father of the fourth character. And we have to understand Abram to really understand the remainder of our Bibles, or it just won't make sense. So this morning, we're going to study a little bit about the life of Abraham, and he's going to point us to an overarching scriptural truth for all of your Bible, and it goes like this. God is faithful. We just sang about that. God is faithful. It's the theme of this morning's sermon. It's our big idea. It's also the overarching theme for our sermon series. It'll take us all the way to Advent, and it is the theme of pretty much the majority of scripture. So I want to talk a little bit about Abram. 
We find ourselves in Genesis chapter 12. If you want to turn with me there, I'm going to invite you to do so. To understand what's going in Genesis chapter 12, you have to have a little bit of a historical backdrop. Now, for some of you, this is going to make you absolutely break out into shingles. You're going to say, just get to the thing and tell me the thing so I can go home and then do the thing. I'm not going to do any of those things just yet. This is part of the sermon, so unclench, relax, let me give you some backstory. This is a part of our biblical narrative. By the time we get to Genesis 12, half of human history has occurred. So it doesn't matter if you hold to an old earth or a young earth. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant at this point. The point is that Genesis 1 to 11 covers half of human history. Until in Genesis 12, things slow way, way, way down, and we're introduced into a person named Abram. But what's going on here? It's really important that you understand who wrote what, when, and to whom, and why. The book of Genesis is a part of the overarching thing we call Torah, or Pentateuch, and it's written by Moses. Some 500 years after Abraham, Moses is called to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land of what is then called Canaan. And these people, the Israelites, have been in Egypt for over four centuries. Yahweh, as God, has become sort of legend and lore. He's not really real to them anymore. The text makes that clear. They've more adopted and embraced the Egyptian pantheon and all their various different gods that are reflected in nature and all the different things that occur to them. And so Moses plops down in the grit of the wilderness, and he begins to write them a story. To tell them who God is. Genesis 1 through 11 is a polemic. A polemic is a fancy word. It just means an organization of material to correct an errant notion or an idea. They thought God must be something like this. Like all the gods of Egypt. Moses says, no, Genesis 1 to 11 is to show you that God is a great big God. And Moses describes his reluctant call as he is shepherding in the wilderness of Midian... He's taking care of all of these sheep when God appears to him in a burning bush. And God calls himself Moses. I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we find is the book of Genesis can really be cut in half. Chapters 1 to 11 is a polemic that God is God. Yahweh is God, and he's a big God. Chapters 12 through 50 The argument is that God is a God of a particular people, and these people are not particularly awesome, and God loves them anyway. Now, that should surprise and stun us, but it doesn't. Yahweh, the creator of the cosmos, who spoke into being all that exists with simply a word, identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's our sermon series for this fall. Jesus will say in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does God identify himself that way? Because God is a faithful God of a particular people. Now, why does Moses organize his content this way? If you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you will sleep like a fallen tree. Because more than half of it is just genealogies of people's names. And there are all these unpronounceable names like Arfaxid. Nobody in here names their kid Arfaxid anymore. You probably shouldn't. He was wicked. What's going on? Well, let me remind you super quickly of the story of Genesis 1 to 11. Buckle up. In the beginning, God. And there's God. And he's good. And he creates people. And they're sort of neutral. They're innocent. And then they rebel. Adam and Eve believe that God is not quite enough. You been there? Sure you have. And they grasp for more. 
and it sets off this cataclysmic, radiating, concentric circles of wreckage. And yet God comes to them and he says, what you have done is severe, but I'm going to fix it because that's the kind of God that I am. Pretty soon by Genesis chapter 4, we have Cain killing his brother Abel. Abel is dead. And so what's going to happen with this promise of redemption that God has given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? I'm going to send one who will be the redeemer. How's it going to happen when Cain has now killed Abel? Abel's dead. Cain is exiled. Ah, there's another son. His name is Seth, which means chosen or appointed by God. Okay, so the blessing, the deliverance, the redemption, the reconciliation is going to come through this one person named Seth. Okay, here we go. This is how God's going to get it done. And then you have all these horrible genealogies. And then you have the increase of human violence in the world. So that by Genesis 6 through 9, the world is such a horrible place, God says, I am sorry that I ever made it. And we have the flood narrative. When all of the families of the world, including the families of Seth, are wiped out. Now, why is Moses writing this down for these people? He wants them to understand who God is, what he's like, and what he does. All the families are wiped out except for one, a man named Noah. And he has three sons, one of which is named Shem. And Shem is the one, Noah prophesies in Genesis 9, that he will be the one through whom the families come that bring the blessing, that bring the deliverance, that bring the reconciliation and the redemption. And so after Genesis 9, you think, okay, here we go, here we go. And then 10 generations go by, and Moses is writing this down to say, let me tell you what happens. After the flood, there are 10 family generations from, Shem, or from Noah all the way to Abram. And the last family in the line of Shem, straight back through to the line of Seth, finds themselves, wait for it, in Ur of the Chaldeans. No! So you read that like I do in Genesis 11. You're like, okay, so he was on a field trip. No, 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 no. That's like the worst place ever if you love Yahweh. They didn't love Yahweh. They didn't know Yahweh. Ur was the center in the ancient world 4,000 years ago for moon worship. In fact... Abram's father is named Terah. Terah means moon. Their whole world is organized around moon worship. They're idolaters. And so the little faint final flicker of hope, that little candle is barely burning. Like, okay, all the families got wiped out. The line of Seth has been reduced down to the line of Shem, and not all of them have gone violent. And in fact, it culminates in the, the Tower of Babel story in chapter 11. And the people of Babel say, you know what? We don't need this, God. We're going to come together ourselves, and we're going to build a tower that builds all the way to heaven. And the text says something interesting, that they build this tower. We would call it a ziggurat in ancient archaeology. They build this thing out of hmm, fired bricks and tar. Your translation might say bitumen. Why would they do that? Why does the text bother telling us about the building materials? Who cares? Ah, because 4,000 years ago, everybody built with stone and mortar because that's what you had. If you use fired bricks and tar, that's extraordinarily, exponentially expensive. Why would they go to that trouble? And why does Moses tell us this? Because he's telling us that the promised family of blessing that remains, they're a part of this building project, and they build it out of fired bricks and tar because... It's waterproof. They don't trust God to never flood the world again. If and when he does it again, this time we'll be ready. We'll have a tower into which we can escape that's waterproof. They don't trust God. And so God says, 
not out of envy, not out of wrath, out of grace and mercy. I'm going to scatter you and disperse you because God is always ascending God. And some of those that are scattered apparently wind up in this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. It's on the Euphrates River. And apparently into that one person, the call of God comes. But Moses doesn't finish there. The faint final flicker of hope, that candle's barely burning because the final line of Shem through Seth is in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's a moon worshiper. And his wife, Sarah, is barren. And the candle's out. It's what Moses wants us to understand. It's hopeless. It's over. The last of the line of Shem through Seth is a Canaanite, or sorry, he's a Chaldean moon worshiper, and his wife is barren. There will not be anyone after. It's over. Now, God said to Abram, This is where it gets good. So if you've got your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you can't find that, hit the table of contents, turn right, you'll be there in no time. Genesis chapter 12, one of the most stunning, shocking verses. After all of the wreckage, after all of the rebellion of chapters 1 through 11, after all the violence and the judgment, now the Lord Yahweh said to Abram, why would he do this? Because God is faithful. And when God makes a promise, it's already fulfilled in the mind of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now there's something we got to deal with really quickly, not to nerd out. But at the end of chapter 11, we're told that uh, Abram has already left with his nephew, his father's household, his wife, and they've gone from Ur the Chaldees and they've sojourned to Haran. And so the thought is, well, when does the call of God actually come to Abram? Is it in Ur of the Chaldeans or is it actually in Haran? And the answer is yes. So Joshua 24, verse 2, Nehemiah 9, 7, Acts 7, 2, all make it clear that God speaks to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans. The idea is that Abram gets all of his stuff, goes, okay, something just spoke to me, this irresistible call, and he heeds it and he follows and he goes, but then he gets comfy, sort of plops down in Haran, that's the end of verse of chapter 11, and he sort of settles there. And so the call of the Lord apparently comes to Abram again here in Haran, and it's very, very forceful. This translation says, go from your country. That's close. It's way more forceful. The ESV sort of softens it to go from your country. The NIV is super huggy and and cuddly. It says, leave your country. No, the King James gets it right. Get thee out. Like, it's not a request. This is get thee out. Hook them. You've settled. Abram, I came to you in Ur. I told you to march. You knew which way to go. So now I'm not even telling you where to go. Get thee out. Abram doesn't have to go. Now, which way was that again? He knows where he's supposed to go, but God's not going to tell him. Get thee out from your country and your kindred. Leave that which is your security, that which you have built around you as your identity, that which you think makes you who you are. Get yourself out of there. That's interesting. And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. John Calvin wrote about this and said, God told Abram to march with his eyes closed. And sometimes God does that. But God is faithful. We can trust him. Verse 2, And I will make 
of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is great textual irony. Moses knows what he's doing. Back in chapter 11, all the people of Babel had gotten together, and they said, we will make for ourselves a great name. And God goes, poof, how'd that work out for you? But here, this pagan, idolatrous moon worshiper with a barren wife, God comes to him and says, I will make your name great. Now, that's fascinating. You know, there's basically three primary monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and all three of them credit Abram as the father of their faith. If Abram would have tried on his own, he would have been a flaming wreckage. But when God says, I will make your name great, God is faithful. He gets that done. Then he gives the promise, the iconic, super central passage for the faithfulness of God is Genesis 12. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 15 in more particular detail. I will make you a great nation. That's kind of funny. Abram's name means father of many. Except he's got a barren wife. Awkward. Later, God's going to change his name to Abraham, which means father of nations. Where's your kids again? Oh, no, she's mm -mm, not happening. God is faithful. He will get it done despite how it might look. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, there's classically three ways of understanding the promise, three blessings, three things. I will give you land, I will give you offspring, and I will give you blessing. And this is sort of what we see over and over throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. And I would love to geek out and nerd out about the significance of those three elements. I'm not going to do that just yet. Save that for later. I will give you... The important thing is that God comes to Abram, an undeserving recipient, and makes a unilateral, unidirectional promise. I'm going to do this. You shush. You sit there and be dead. We'll learn about that next week. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to do this. God carries the full burden and the weight of the responsibility and the execution. I'm going to do this for you. Now, our translations all translate it so that you will be a blessing. That's not straightforward enough. God says, I'm going to do all of this. Be a blessing. It's an imperative. It's not just so that this might happen. God gives Abram an instruction. I'm going to do this for you. Don't hoard to yourself. Don't build a tower. I'm going to bless you with land, offspring, and blessing, abundance. You be a blessing. This is how he's going to reach the world. Verse four, so Abram went Oh, sorry, uh, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. God says, I will handle the repercussions of anyone that treats you badly. That's not your program. Your program is to be a blessing, not to defend yourself, not to defend your rights, not that you're mad as heck and you're not going to take it anymore. God says, no, 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 that's, that's on me. You be a blessing. That's your job description. Bless her. That's it. I will handle all the other repercussions and all the other things that go on. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we're starting to fear, figure out is that not even death is an obstacle to the faithfulness of God. He's going to do this despite there being no hope and no way. God's going to get it done. Not even death is an obstacle to the faithfulness of God. Well, moving on in verse 4. So Abram went. That's always a good idea. When God says, hey, come here you come. When he says, go over there, you go. It's a good model for us to follow. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. What's interesting is Moses is sitting down in the grit of the wilderness as the children of Israel sojourn, and he's making Abram the picture of obedience and faith, not himself. 
Not, not anybody else. It's always Abram. And in the New Testament, it follows a similar pattern. In Galatians, in Romans, in Hebrews, Abram or Abraham is always listed as the picture of faith and trust and obedience. It's not Moses. It's not David. It always points back to Abram. So this is a very central character for us. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, Moses doesn't really tell us if that was a good idea or a bad idea. It's just that God had said, leave everything, your, your extended family, your household, everything, and you go. The next thing you know, we've got Terah, his father, who dies in Haran. We've got Sarai. We've got Lot, all these extra people. That's interesting. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. That's a strange thing here. The word people here is not slaves or servants, which we kind of just assume that he just sort of built up his household. They got sheep, donkeys, camels, maybe three or four peacocks and a raccoon, we don't know, and a bunch of like servants and slaves. No, these are people, the word is nefesh, for souls. These are proselytes. Apparently, Abram is talking about Yahweh and his goodness and his faithfulness, and people are desperate for it, and they come along, and they want to follow and travel with Abram and the people that he acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So I want to show you this on screen, just for those of you who need to be oriented geospatially and so that you're not completely gone. Ur of the Chaldees is in the southeastern part of the Near East. It's on the Euphrates River. Abram and his crew, they venture northwest to Haran, which is in modern day, some would say eastern Turkey, maybe northern Syria, somewhere in there. They probably go through Nineveh. They go into Haran. And then finally God says, no, no, get thee out. If your dad and your brother and your nephew, don't, nobody else wants to go, I'm not talking to them. I'm trying to bless the world here. If you not notice that it's violent and corrupt and upside down and inside out? I'm trying to bless the world here. Get moving. It's not about Abram. I'm trying to make you a blessing. I'm trying to bring blessing through an individual. That's interesting. And so then they travel southwest and they go down probably through Damascus, which is an ancient, ancient city, and they find themselves near Shechem. And then Moses adds this strange little ingredient. They find themselves at the Oak of Moreh. I don't name most of my trees. There's a couple that have names, but why does Moses add the fact that this tree has a name? It's literally the teaching oak. And the Canaanites are in the land. What is he telling us? This is a place of cultic Canaanite practice of idolatry. Abram goes straight there and he sets up shop and he begins talking about the faithfulness of Yahweh. And right in the middle of this place, in the land of Canaan, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of uh, at Shechem, the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. <laughs> at which point, Abram's looking around going, yeah, about that. I have questions. I'm 75. She's a smooth 66. And uh, uh, God says, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that later. You obey and be faithful and trust me. Okay? He, re- he reiterates the blessing God does. And so Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Why an altar? Here in front of the teaching tree, in front of the Canaanites, Abram builds an altar. What do you do on an altar? You make sacrifice. It's costly to demonstrate your trust, your obedience, that you believe God is the kind of God that he says that he is. And Abram is following. This is all good. 
Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country. That means he moves further south along the, the coast of the Mediterranean. He moved uh, to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He built a second altar. He offers sacrifice. He's been acquiring all this material abundance and plenty. And so he shows God, this is from you. You're worth this. And he makes an altar. And it says he calls upon the name of the Lord. That is a Hebraism. That's a Hebrew expression. That means he worships and proclaims. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this. He, he sacrifices, he worships, he proclaims. He, Martin Luther translated this, he preaches Yahweh to the Canaanites. Now, that's pretty great because God said, be a blessing. Verse 9, and Abram, oh, sorry, uh, yep, verse 9, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. He goes further south into the wilderness. Now, you would expect the next verse to be, and Abram continued to obey God. And he became an ambassador and an emissary of international blessing because he trusted God. This is what you would expect is going to happen. Verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether that's right or wrong, but he's supposed to be in Canaan. A problem arose, and Abram forgot the promise. You ever been there? When problems come, we tend to forget the promise. A famine came. And you think God is surprised by that? Like, oh no, what am I going to do? I promised this guy abundance and plenty, but now there's a famine. Oh no. God is not at all thwarted by our problems. He is faithful. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, (laughs) fellas, This is not a small group lesson for you to learn from, unless it's the opposite approach. Don't do this. He said to his wife, Sarah, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Stop there. Don't say anything else. Just stop. Oh, no. He keeps going. And when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, wow, you fine. Oh, that's 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 in the Hebrew. It's not actually how he goes. This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, that might sound strange to us, like, you coward. No, he's actually right. In those days, normative culture was, if you saw someone that was good-looking and she was married, no problem. You just put a rock through his head, and then you take her. Easy peasy. Oh, wait, but that's your brother? Mm, see, even they had manners. Because, I mean, come on, she's property. Am I right? Well, I'm not right. I'm just saying 4,000 years ago, that was the notion. If he says, hey, she's my sister, then they go, oh, dude, your sister's kind of hot. And they would pay him off. And that was just the culture. And even the Egyptians had honor in this way. And so Abram says, I trust God and all, and he's blessed. But for this, he doesn't understand the details. He doesn't know how Egypt works. I got this. And so he schemes in his own strength and his own cleverness, which I just kind of want to rent that DVD. I know those don't exist anymore, but in heaven they will. I want to rent the DVD of Abram telling Sarah, here's what's going to happen. Honey, it's going to be great. They're going to take you and put you in a harem. And, yeah, I said harem. Anyway, just, it's going to be fine. And she's going, no, I like the whole trusting Yahweh thing a whole lot better. What's going on with that? But she has to go along with it. Watch what happens. Verse 12, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, which technically she was his half-sister. And I know what you're thinking. Ew, ew, ew. Why is nobody saying anything about this? 
That was sort of culturally normative because there's not that many people in the world. It is his half-sister, but a half-truth is a whole lie. We know this. He's not saying this because she's his half-sister. He's saying this because he wants to save his own skin, and he doesn't trust God, and that never works out well. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me. I mean, I mean us. <laughs> That's not what he says. Say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me, boy, Abe. Like, you wouldn't make this stuff up. No. That's what he says, so that it will go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. And oh, by the way, sorry about that whole harem thing. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Yep, he knows how this is going to go. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, just to be super above board here, we're not giving any indication that anything ever, quote, happened between Pharaoh and Sarah. Like, not yet. That didn't happen. God prevented that from happening. Verse 16, and when he's in the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Your wife is hot. Here's some zoo animals. Like, <laughs> things haven't changed all that much. Okay. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Wait a second. What the heck? Do you see what Moses is doing? Remember, this is a polemic about who God is, how big he is, and that he is a God of a particular people. The book of Genesis is not a polemic against Charles Darwin and evolution. So don't try to use it as such. That's not what it's for. Moses is trying to tell those people in that day, at that time, in that place, who God is, what he's like, and what he does. And he's trying to tell them, y'all just came out of Egypt. You remember? And the plagues? This is not a new story. Abram, your forefather, was there 500 years earlier. And what he did was disobedient. And it took him to Egypt. And God was faithful then. And he brought plagues down on the house of Pharaoh. And they're going, I think I've heard this story before. Moses says, yes, because it's yours. And by the way, you've heard this story before. Yes, because it's also yours and it's mine. It's an amazing symmetry. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? It's amazing. The one called by God is actually being lectured in nobility by a pagan from Egypt. Sometimes that's how it can be. Verse 19, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Like, it's almost identical Exodus language when Pharaoh tells Moses, we're tired of all the death and the frogs, especially the frogs. Take your stuff and go. It's like the exact same thing. And as Moses records this, he wants them to know that this has happened before, but the constant is that God is faithful. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife, all that he had. What Abram actually intends for evil, God superintends for good. Now, that's very good news. See, God is faithful. So what do we do with this? Let me just give you three very quick implications and takeaways that we can begin as we study the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some takeaways that we can apply to our everyday lives. Number one goes like this, and I've already alluded to it rather clearly. Now I want to jump up and down and, like, scream it at you. God blesses us to bless others. Now, texts like this have historically been misused, misapplied to spout the notion that if you just trust God, he's going to bless you and give you good stuff. And we know better. 
There are good brothers and sisters who love Jesus, who are faithful and who are obedient, who are martyred all the time. That's not how it works, not at all. I mean, God might choose to bless you in some way that you want, and that's great, that's his prerogative, but it's almost never based on something that you did. That wouldn't be a blessing. It is because we are in Christ and God loves his son and his son's finished work that is smeared all over us and in us. That's what it means to be anointed. It means to be slathered. We've been Christed. We've been Messiahed. And that's why he loves us, so that we will also be a blessing to others. If and when God blesses us, it's an infusion of joy from the outside in some way. It is always so that we can be a blessing to somebody else. The New Testament fully flowers this. There are more than 47 one-anothering passages where one another is essentially used like a verb. One another, her. One another, him. Bless somebody else. God's given you these gifts so that you will build, bless, and bolster the body of Christ. It is always for somebody else. See, God's faithful, and the way he works his grace to and through the people in the world is actually through the people who are in Christ most closely, most nearly, in and through you. Abram got to be the conduit and the vessel. And it turns out that's a little microcosm of what God's going to do all over the world, ultimately in the fifth character of Scripture. You see, we had God, we had the angelic realm, we had Adam, humanity. Then we have Israel, the Son of God. But the fifth character is the church, those who are in Christ, these little Abrams who get to go out and be blessed so that they will be a blessing, where God says, be a blessing. That's your job description. Be a blessing. When we see people around us and we love them and see them like God does, and we pray that we ourselves can somehow be an increased blessing to them, that's when things begin to take a turn and a new level of excitement when God starts doing things in and through you that you never saw coming. Like, where's that been? Well, all you were praying for ever was that she would like you somehow. God's not really interested in that. God wants little vessels of redemption and reconciliation globally populating. Number two, this is really good news. God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. Now, many of you have been in church for a very long time and you think you know this, but let me be super clear. We all need to hear this. God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. Every other religion in the world other than Christianity, that is, every other organizing narrative in existence, they all say, essentially, if you boil them all down and render them to their simplest point, is, if it's to be, it's up to me. I got to do a thing to get a thing. It's a transactional thing. I've got to do a thing, and then God will bless me. I got to do a thing, and the gods will be honored. I got to do a thing. I got to do a thing. If it's to be, it's up to me. And that's all fine and dandy if it wasn't for the whole, you know, sin nature thing and our tendency and proclivity to mess up all the time, to hop on the sin train like I do at least every 90 or so seconds. My wife's going nine seconds, not 90. Agreed. And so where would that leave us? Some of you know what this feels like. Maybe some of you in this room on the second floor or upstairs on the third floor or watching remotely, some of you know what this is like. Maybe you're a new believer or a relatively immature believer, and you've worshiped sincerely, and you got really on fire for the Lord, but then soon enough, there was a face plant of error and sin and mistake, and it made you wonder if any of this Jesus thing was really real. This text is for you. See, God is faithful. He will get it done. 
Abram builds two altars and sacrifices to Yahweh. And then he goes to Egypt and lies about his wife. You been there? Of course you have. We're going to have a show of hands here on the second floor. You guys upstairs, no, we're not. We've all been there. You've had your mountaintop experience, and then before you know it, your thought life explodes. Your language explodes. Your, your deed life explodes. He's faithful. He will get it done in and through you, and ever increasingly, you'll begin to see that trusting him and following him are actually way better, way more fulfilling, way more lasting and sustainable than the lesser jolts this world has to offer. Some of the rest of you know what this feels like. You've been a believer since right after Abel bit the dust. Good for you. You've been a Christian a very long time. That's good. You're wondering what your life has been about for the last several years, maybe even decades. Well, this text is for you. God is still faithful. Abram was over the hill. He was 75 years when all this begins. But the call of God moved him into a context in which he got to intentionally be a blessing to others, others that were not like him, incidentally, and see God work in marvelous ways. Trust him. Third point. What God says about you matters more than what you say about you. We say this all the time down here. You should preach to yourself more than you listen to yourself. That might sound like a conflict. It's not. There is a voice of accusation and doubt and uncertainty and fear that whispers to your inner being. But you speak out loud the truths that God says about you because what he says about you matters more than what you say about you. Abram was a pagan over-the-hill moon worshiper with a barren wife. That much was true, and nobody denied it. But God called Abram Abraham, the father of multitudes. That much was going to be super true. Abram saw problems. God remembered his promise. That's good news. There seemed to be no way that the promises of God could come true. There was just too much evidence and patterns of failure to really trust in that. But God is faithful. He gets done what he says he's going to get done. This is the nature of our salvation. When we heed the call of God to leave our country, whatever that means, our previous pattern of life, our previous patterns of of relationships, nothing much probably changes initially except for how perhaps we feel and maybe how we see the world. But everything has really changed because God chooses to change his mind about us. You ever thought about that? When you became a Christian, my sense is you probably didn't get raptured right then and there. You're just gone. Because if you were, why are you here? That would be weird. When you become a Christian, not all that much changes, except that maybe you stop doing these patterns of sin in some way for a time. But what really changes is that God chooses to see you or me different. It's not that you're just a Christian and a saved person and a son and a daughter. That's all true and that's all good. But now you become the very vessel through whom God will continue to bring blessing so that others can receive the blessings of God. He really is that good. See, God is faithful. We'll talk about this more hopefully, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, but God promises Abram, I will give you land, offspring, and blessing. But really, those three things all come down to one promise. Abram still looks around and says, I have to have a son. It's all great, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything unless there's a son. And God says, exactly. I'm going to provide a son. That's the contingent promise. There must be a son through whom the blessings flow. We're getting prepared for, of course, Jesus. 
In the Old Testament, there are two kinds of prophecy. There are those kinds of prophecies where someone says, this is going to happen, and it does. But then there are prophecies we call types, where you look at a person's life and his ministry and what happens to him, and you go, oh, that's actually a picture of what's going to happen in the future. It's called a type. We see it with Joseph. We see it with David and on and on and on. Abram is a type. He steps out of his father's household. He goes and he suffers insecurity. He suffers homelessness. He suffers nothing. Why? So that he would be a blessing to us, do you see? Now, the type breaks down. It's not a perfect picture because, in fact, Isaac ends up being the son of God through whom the blessings of God flow to each and every one of us. Jesus does this. And I know that in our day and age, most of us don't want a promise. We like it. It's fine we'd really rather have as a plan mapped out with little arrows and subpoints. we want a little google map for our lives okay fine here you go number one turn your eyes upon jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace they should write that down somewhere Number two, know him. Number three, love him. Number four, be conformed to him. Number five, be a blessing to his people for his sake. Number six, die in joy. If anyone else tells you otherwise, they're selling you something. That's God's plan. And he's promised he is faithful to get us there. This morning, I want to say with eyes wide open, if you're here or you're watching remotely somehow, and you're not a believer, you're still of the transactional mindset of I've got to, I've got to, if it's to be, it's up to me, I invite you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is precisely who our Bibles say that he is, and he accomplished what he said he would do. He takes away the sin of the world, and he invites you to be slathered, smeared, anointed in his finished work. You don't have to do anything. This is the gospel but you get to be a blessing and live for something bigger and beyond yourself. I invite you to believe that. And when I say believe it, I mean like Abram. So much so that you'll act on it. Put all of your weight on that simple square of truth that Jesus is alive. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a very long time and you've sort of forgotten and you're just trying to eke it out until you're dead. And God will never honor that. Be a blessing. And your life will have meaning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning, for this opening text in our series this fall. I pray, God, that you would be honored to continue to maximize, magnify the name of your son, Jesus, in our hearts and minds and in our, in our church. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning in present or watching remotely that is not a believer, I pray, God, that you would do for them what you have done for us, that you would lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, and that they would step out of the death of doing and into the life of receiving so that they would be a blessing to someone else. Father, for the rest of us, would you encourage us that you are faithful, you know us, you see us, and you love us, and that we have an opportunity, whatever sphere of influence we occupy, to be a blessing. God, would you do this? exactly as I have prayed or even better because you're that kind of a God. So I pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.